We are back for another Codex Cantina episode, which is just two guys talking literature, trying to make sense of it. Now, we spend a lot of time pushing ourselves, trying to understand this literature, organizing it, and then bringing it to a conversational approach for how we deliver it. And we've absolutely put more money in it than we've gotten out of it. So if you guys are considering supporting this channel, we'd appreciate you checking out our Patreon link at patreon.com slash the Codex Cantina, as well as Ko-Fi of ko-fi.com slash the Codex Cantina. It all helps us in running the show, along with commercials, guys. So thank you so much. We're going to do a quick commercial break, and then we'll get on with the rest of the episode. Clarice Lispector, dare I say, top five writers of all time. And I don't mean for women. I don't mean for Brazil. I mean of all time. I agree. You're not getting any arguments here. (laughs) We're looking at the hour of the star. One of the most famous quotes with no one can enter another's heart. Let's break down what this story could mean today. We're going to start off with a spoiler free section and then do kind of our usual chat where we move into a discussion and analysis section here as we get into it. Do it. Excited. Welcome to the Codex Cantina where I am Una. And you have my heart crypto. (laughs) If you are new to the Codex Cantina, we take a conversational approach to the stories that we read, breaking down some of the most important stories and authors that have influenced even today's writers. If you're down for a conversational approach to literature, hit that subscribe button to join us on the journey. And as always, start off with publication information. The Hour of the Star was published in October 1977, and our version was translated by Benjamin Moser. An enigma, even to her fellow Brazilians, Clarice Lispector. She actually never gave any live interviews while she was alive. The one that she did recorded right before she died in February. She made them promise not to release it until after she died. And that request was honored. Little did she know that she would publish this book in October and die later that same year. But the Hour of the Star, this is the centennial version coming out 100 years after her birth, is a powerful work. And she had expressed as early as 1972 about a desire to die of passing from an incurable cancer, you know, given to her from God, from her, uh, a breath of life book. And, And Moser writes in her biography that she was winding down in her will to live. Very sad ending, and I think it's it's very unfortunate that she felt that she had nothing else to give but her writing. And that's maybe what she did and what her son writes about in the afterword of this book is sometimes that she felt that that was all that she knew how to do as she got into her more mature age. I think this book is very fitting for that. It definitely feels like an homage to her life. And it feels like this is the last thing that I have to give to humanity. And oh, is it a doozy. And this story is engaging. It's deep. It's philosophical. And something that a lot of people don't mention is it's funny. Right? Like, I mean, she has four roommates, all named Maria. (laughs) (laughs) I I definitely found myself laughing at times. I was like, wow, did that just happen? This is supposed to be like a serious, deep book. And I'm chuckling out loud. And I almost feel guilty about laughing about it. But it's very, very humorous. You'll have these quotes where she'll say, I'll miss myself so bad when I die. (laughs) (laughs) And then Olympico, who's with her, says, Bull, once you're dead, you're dead. That's not what my aunt taught me. To hell with your aunt. <laughs> so, yeah. so here's the thing about this story. is It has very touching and deep subjects. Poverty is not something to laugh at. 
in real life and is something that is very sad. And it's interesting to see Clarice finally approaching a social concern. Usually she's one of the heart, one that usually writes about the divide between men and women. For her to start talking about, you know, her early age, this is not an autobiographical work, but her son writes in the afterword that he hears echoes of his mother's life through this book. But, you know, she grew up as a Northeastern girl. So you can kind of see some elements where she knows that lifestyle and she knows how what that struggle means. And it's very sad, but this is literature. This is a reflection of life and what does it mean to have that type of poverty and lifestyle. And I think what she does is she brings it out in a way that is very honored and respectful of that. But at the same time, it's kind of funny too. Like, when they're at the zoo and she just has to, she sees a rhinoceros and she's had too much coffee and she just pees her pants. Like, it's sad. <laughs> it's also kind of funny. Like, I could see how people take it different ways. I think what makes Lespector a genius writer is not only is she able to take what she knows and transform it into a beautiful story, but she's like a master joke teller. You you see comedians up on stage and they're telling you a story and then they hit with a punchline and then they actually have the aha moment of like, wait a minute, that joke actually has relevance to give me more meaning to my life or make me question my own beliefs or question my own existence or question what I think about others. And she does this exact same thing, but through literature. So at the core of this story, okay, we're going to struggle with the knowledge, the gift of ignorance or the curse of knowledge. And we see that explored with a couple of the different characters in this piece. And the way that she explores the poverty with Maccabea, the way that all she eats is hot dogs and bologna sandwiches, but like, <laughs> well, that's her, funny too. <laughs> her treat is like a Coca Cola, which I can totally relate to as well. It strikes this profound balance between deep and real, but also that. Uh, that appropriate amount of fictionality to the characters that we could still separate it. But that separation comes at a cost because no one enters another's heart to quote Clarice, the specter in this. And that is what is so engaging with this text is trying to understand Maccabea at a distance. How do we truly know someone? And I think that's a struggle that we can really really relate to. Yeah, for me, I think that this is something Lespector does so well is that makes characters relatable. Even though I don't think I ever went through the experiences Maccabeat did, I can still kind of see some of those things of like, yeah, I remember eating, you know, ramen all the time in college. And that's kind of, you know, in lieu of hot dogs. And I think that you try to know somebody, but it is we talk about this narrator guy in here do we ever truly know somebody? Should we ever really know somebody is another great question that I think it kind of comes up loosely through the story as well. The one warning I would give someone is that this does start off rather philosophical, rather deep. We are nuancing and circling in on some concepts of what does it mean to know someone? And we can only achieve that if this story is not told from an omniscient perspective, right? This is told through Rodrigo S.M. Okay, weird. We don't even get his last name. Even the narrator has this distance between us. And he talks about how he's trying to tell the story, but he, he has to be careful with the words that he chooses because he realizes how powerful that can be when telling the story. He can guide us to liking or disliking or having pity on her when that's not his goal. He wants us to know the real Maccabea. 
if I could give you a visualization before getting into this book and before we move into the spoiler chat, imagine this book like a glacier inverted, all right, an inverted glacier. You have all of this weight bearing down on you with these heavy, heavy questions, and it's big, huge at the top, and then it slowly moves down and becomes simpler at the end and kind of delivers this powerful message after you've gained all this knowledge and you do kind of get that Aha, uh-huh. okay, I kind of get that. And that is something that's very unusual because usually you try to start simple and go more complex later. And I think what she's done here is genius. And then the next thing you know, once you get into like the back two thirds of this book, you're done. Like it just, it's addictive. The way that the story unfolds, the way that she she almost breaks these rules where instead of starting the story off easy and approachable, she starts it off with this this philosophical punch and then all of a sudden you're coasting on easy street and you're not going to be able to put this book down. And I think that's what's just so magical and the feeling that people get when they walk away from this book that the the beginning was worth it because that idea of struggling and knowledge is going to be core to how you I think interpret the rest of this book. So let's move into a spoiler chat section. For those of you that haven't read this book, you know, please consider checking it out because it is an absolutely wonderful experience. And at 77 pages, you cannot go wrong with it. I highly encourage it. Now for the spoiler chat, I think this quote was really critical that no one can enter another's heart was was critical for me to understand this book. I really like this one that kind of goes along the same theme. It says, my truest life is unrecognizable, extremely interior, and there's not a single word that defines it. And I think that's so appropriate for a book that starts out with all of this philosophy, all of this judgment, right? We we are starting out as interior as we can get in, in in a fictional story to Rodrigo. And now his goal is to pull out the interior of Maccabea. And that is a to use your quote, you know, glacier, <laughs> a glacial task to do because it is so hard to truly get to know someone. And I love how that she has written Maccabea. And there, there's a quote that, I, again, I chuckled and I, I know I shouldn't laugh, but she said there was something slightly idiotic about her, but she wasn't an idiot. Like, well, why would you use that to describe her then? <laughs> <laughs> well, but that, that to that point, that's giving us a lot of information about Rodrigo, Right. When he starts talking to you about wealth, when he starts talking to you about intelligence, these are things that are high on his value scale, right? So Maccabea's worth is going to be put through the filter of Rodrigo, and I think that's part of the genius of Clarice the Spector because that is laid on rather thick as you read the story. Now, when it comes to actually knowing someone, I think one of the challenges that we have is, is what? how do you know you do? Like, how do you know you successfully really understood this person and i don't know if we can define that because unfortunately i think a lot of people take that easy answer of oh i knew they were going to do this like when you can predict the actions of someone they're like oh i knew you were going to do that i know you man and that's not really knowing them that's knowing an action and i think in the 21st century we're a little bit smarter about knowing how about how we can put on fronts and how we can do things to please others that actions don't always equate to who we are on the inside we talked about this simply of holding the door open, right? I don't hold the door open because I'm a nice person. I do it so somebody says, thank you, because I want that affirmation. And I think that's Rodrigo, right? Because he's yeah. trying to tell Maccabea's story. But then he'll have these quotes where he's like, okay, now back to me. 
<laughs> yeah, it makes me mad. I'm just like, oh, the Spectre, why'd you do this? You wrote this guy so well to be a jerk. I hate him. <laughs> well, and you, ha- you have these ways that he looks down on her, where he describes Maccabea as not even having a good enough body to sell, right, to, to be Oof. a streetwalker. And, and what does that mean? That means he's putting money, wealth, as a as a measurement for one's worth, right? Already we know Rodrigo knows and he looks down upon the girl. He says he doesn't want to. He wants to give us the words that present her in a true light. But you can see how he slips back to me. This girl, she don't have no money, right? We see how he is passing judgment on her and that's going to taint his view on what is ultimately kind of a very innocent, if not naive little girl. And I love how that the story over and over again shows the rampant poverty in Rio de Janeiro, but it's irrelevant to Maccabea because she is so ignorant of things. She's able to have joy in these other moments throughout the story. And this almost infuriates Rodrigo, right? Because he doesn't understand it because to your point, he doesn't understand her. So let's talk about knowledge. I'm going to test you here to see if you actually were paying attention. Do you remember me talking about Ribot and Bergson from a philosophical standpoint? Oh, wasn't that like two years ago? <laughs> it was like two months ago. Darn it. All right. So I see my speeches are going Refresher well course. Refresher course. <laughs> Hopefully you out there do better than, than Mr. Crypto here. So Ribot, okay. So, and my pronunciation is terrible. Let's, let's start with that. But Ribot believed that memory was a, a physical part of you like in your brain in your spinal cord like there's a physical part where memories are stored okay okay bergson argued that that knowledge was was way too big of a thing to just be reduced to something physical and his example is the how do you get to know a city example oh yeah okay 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 it's 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 coming back it's a little fuzzy it's a fuzzy you you know it's in my heart in my mind it's somewhere in my body (laughs) pull it out pull it out example of of you know his attack on knowledge is let's say you take a picture of a city from every possible conceivable angle right and you construct this this experience where you can look at the city from any direction at any angle and see what's happening he says you still won't truly know the city And I think that has to be true on some level, right? Google Maps is so impressive now with some of the 3D elements that you can just like literally tour really like fancy tourist places and get like to move around even inside buildings and stuff now. Okay, yeah, yeah. So we were were Dublin, right? Okay, yes. Oh, I remember. Yeah, I gotcha. But did Google Maps kill tourism, (laughs) right? Like people don't just go like, oh, let's go check it out. Google Maps, I'm good. Like tourism's still a thing. And that comes to a second point, that the person that walks the city for an afternoon will already know that city better than the person who experienced it intellectually from all the pictures. His argument is that knowledge is part intuitive. It's part experiential. It's movement. It's, it's an action that takes place. And I can't help but feel that a lot of, I'm not saying that, you know, Clarice was, was drawing parallels between these two philosophers. No, no. I, I'm, what I'm saying is that her view of life and the theory of literature that she has, has a lot of commonplace elements where we can see how knowledge is something that's intuitive in Clarice's world. Clarice is probably the type of person that wanted to experience and interact with something more so than have a story 
you know, told to her or her to intellectually know that. She was someone that knew that she had to experience something. And you have quotes where she'll say something like, I also know about things because I'm alive. Everyone alive knows. Even if they don't know, they know. So you, gentlemen, know more than you think, just pretending not to. And I think that speaks to that kinetic or intuitive element where we have to experience and engage with life to truly have knowledge. And I think that has to be somewhere in the answer of knowing someone. You know, Rodrigo can't just tell this story and won't understand Maccabea completely, right? We get these vignettes about her. We get to know her. We get to feel for her. But it's still an intellectual aspect. Only if we were to able to actually interact with Maccabea for an afternoon, we would know her as a person so much better than an entire story written by someone to intellectually know them in a sense. I, I love the idea of the city. For me, a lot of my memories and things of how I know stuff, I feel like always comes back to like taste and smell. And in the story, there's a beautiful quote that says, as for the girl, she lives in impersonable limbo without reaching the worst or the best. She just lives inhaling and exhaling, inhaling and exhaling. And I can imagine just like sitting there and breathing in the city, like sitting in a park and listening and having the sun shine on your face and just taking it all in and experiencing it is going to give you more than anything else of somebody telling you about it or watching a video. You have to actually engage, I think. And that's what I think Liz Spector has done beautifully in this between these two characters that basically don't know anything about each other. Well, and you, you can see that in the way that they interact too. Like when they're even talking about some simple words like account, like, you know what account is, right? Explain what account is. And he's like, account is account. Like, he intuitively knows what it is, but he doesn't know how to find the intellectual way to express it. And Maccabea, she experiences the world through this clock radio, right? You can't truly know a world through Google Maps. You can't truly know it through a clock radio. You're going to be naive, kind of like the way Maccabea is in this, if you do. And it's only once she actually gets out and experiences things that she can truly feel the power of them whether it be a rhinoceros making you pee in your pants at the zoo <laughs> or making a true connection with someone, you don't really know the feeling until you're in person. And these characters both are consistent with like that attitude, that philosophy through this whole story, I think. To me, I think this comes back to kind of the core of Lispector. And as she's writing this, she's feeling that she's at the point that she's at the end of her life. She's feeling misunderstood. Um, she wants to connect with other people in her life, maybe before she dies. She definitely wants to connect with God before she dies so that she maybe has a better relationship before she meets God. Uh, and I think that this disconnect that she's having is really driving this story and this disconnect between these two characters. The way that she approaches this is so layered and complex. I would argue that it reaches, you know, Joycean levels of complexity at some points, and I'm going to make a case for it here. And I mean that in a good way. I know she got offended when people said like, oh, you write like Joyce. I don't mean that. What I mean is you write in a complex and layered way, Lispector, that is very engaging for an audience. And very few other authors, some very well regarded like James Joyce, have ever achieved that. So one of the things that she does is, is weave mythology and we'll get into some other elements here, but let me just start with just the mythology here. The narrator says, I'm not going to adorn the word because if I touch the girl's bread, the bread will turn to gold. Do you know what that's a reference to, Mr. Crypto? 
So that's the Midas touch. Yes, King Midas, where anything he touches turned to gold. A man with so much ambition, everything he touched became wealthy and lucrative. However, that's a problem when it comes to eating. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He's Bink. a man. Oh, that's not going to work. <laughs> a man literally choking on his own ambition. And I think that's where we can draw parallels here with Rodrigo. So not only does she directly call out that things will turn to gold that he touches, you know, dying by your own ambition. He's talking about his own ambition of wanting to become this flowery or really, you know, advanced writer killing the story, right? The way that she wove those two together is quite magical. But also what she weaves throughout this whole thing is you'll notice there's all these musical references and you've got these explosions happening. And I think a lot of people are like, what's going on with this? And, you know, I'll do a shout out to our buddy Noah over at Everyone Who Reads It Must Converse. I'll leave a link to his video where he talks about all the different musical instruments that she references in this. But you have these quotes where she'll say, words are sounds transfused with unequal shadows that intersect stalactites, lace, transfigured organ music. And this music is a really important element to, I feel like, this story. James Joyce, very well known for his Ulysses. We have yet to tackle it on this channel, but I've been talking with Noah and some other friends about this chapter 11 of Ulysses. It's very famous from a critical standpoint where a lot of people look at it and how he was able to lace musical theory and words and, and everything in that chapter. It becomes this beautiful uh, structural like reference to, to music in a sense and obviously go to someone who's doing a breakdown on that for that breakdown but what i want to do is compare that to how clarice constructs her story here she uses these words that are very musical such as discordant countertone the base of pain allegro mute silence etc all of these words are just on page eight of my copy Okay. Wow. So she's using music almost as kind of like this structural way of exploring the story. The hour of the star. What does the title of the story mean? And we have this quote. I know that when I die, I'll hear the man's violin and demand music, music, music. And this foreshadows the end of Maccabea's life, right? The hour of the star in our final moment. How do people reflect on us? You know, maybe they hated us or they didn't like working with us, but all of a sudden at a funeral, you hear nothing but the wonderful praises and the most beautiful ways of looking at someone. And I, you can't help but wonder, okay, so we're honoring this person's life, but, but what is the true person? And did we truly know that person at that moment? And you see how these people come out and, and lament like, oh, what happened to Maccabea? She just got struck by, or this lady, she just got struck by this Mercedes. And this is her, her crescendo. And there's all of these, depending on if you have the Pontiero or the uh, Moser translation, Moser has explosion, Pontiero, I think it says, you know, uh, bomb or something like that. It's almost like the so it goes of this novel right? Where it's like explosion, Aww, yeah. explosion. You know, there's, there's all these things where in the middle of sentences, the narrator injects explosion randomly. And it's this building up of noise, almost kind of like when you look at an orchestra, how all the instruments start to come together and build up and it starts happening more and more frequently until it explodes at the hour 
of the start, the hour of Maccabeus' death, is when she hears music, music, music. It's this idea about how she uses music to interlay and, and apply structure to the story, where we see all of these references to sounds and musical terms throughout it. I can't think of another writer that can write so complex and perfectly interweave into a very readable narrative the way that she constructed this story as as Clarice Lee Spector, which is why I think she's easily top five writer of all time. For me, and maybe do you feel this way, that because it was done so subtly, and unless you're looking for it, you probably miss it with all this foreshadowing and all this building and all this tension that seems to be ramping up that at the end, when Maccabea is killed, were you sad? Or did you actually feel a sense of relief for her? Maybe both. I think we can have complex reasoning emotions. And, and emotions yeah. in us when it comes to these sorts of things. Because also this story is one where it created that space to allow us to have different interpretations of something being sad and humorous at the same time of feeling pity and wanting to drive to say, you know, Maccabea, do it this way instead. You wanted to save her from, you know, Olympico, who's a terrible human being, and the way that he abused her emotionally. It leaves all of this space for a reader to have a lot of different emotions come into the play of this. So for me, I could feel both sad and relief at the same time when it came to this moment. Yeah, we haven't really talked about kind of the betrayal of the story either of some of the other characters we really just talked about Maccabea and Rodrigo, but um, there's a lot else going on with this story besides just those two in their relationship that is kind of non-existent. Well, and there's even the, the whole subject of class. We've barely even scratched the surface on that, right? With quotes like living well is only for the privileged. And like later on, since she didn't have a handkerchief to clean off the mud and blood, she wiped her face with her skirt. And I think this this gives us some insight to not only Maccabea, but to your point, Olympico, right? He, he didn't buy her treats. He didn't buy her food or drinks. He treated her, right? This is a gift I'm allowing to give to you. But, oh, well, if it costs extra, you know, for, for this, you got to pay for that on your own. He's the type of guy that his class, his, his superiority in class was something he lorded over Maccabea. I think it frustrated him, a very reader-centric, subjective view, that Maccabea didn't see it the same way. She was just so excited to have these intuitive experience and reactions to go to the zoo, to see new things that she's never seen before, like a rhinoceros. <laughs> <laughs> and, and he wanted her to feel indebted to him, I would almost say. Like that class of using class as a weapon. Since I have more money, you should you should kiss my feet, right? You should look up to me. I am your God. And the same way that Rodrigo is the God of the story by creating life with the words that he's doing. Uh, you know, he's almost giving life to Maccabee and such. It's this idea, I think, to me, that we all look up to those that are more powerful than us and look for that power in a sense. And what made Maccabee so perplexing she wasn't looking for that. She was very mystical, going to a storyteller who, or a fortune teller who could tell her the future. And she's like, oh, my future's going to turn better. That's great. Smack. In comes the music, right? Yeah. For me, I was kind of taking the class slash economic view of Olympico and that he represented 
not necessarily maybe the sin of of greed, but I mean, I have nothing really positive to say about this guy. Uh, you know, he's in this serious relationship and he cheats on Maccabea. He's horrible to her, treats her awful. But at the same time, I think that Les, uh, Lespector was trying to get the point across that maybe this idea of greed or money or having more is the thing that corrupts you because Maccabea has none of this and she, I feel like she's the only one that's happy in the story. And she's the one that dies. Like, we should feel sorry for her, but she ends up the best out of everybody in in a certain point of view. And I think that's where Lispector is kind of having that inner monologue as she's writing in this is like, everybody else will be sad that I'm gone, but I'll be better off when I'm gone. Right. Well, it's also one of those things, too. It depends on how a writer approaches that subject, right? If this were written by Flannery O'Connor, that death was would have been written in a way to have been seen as salvation. I think Lispector, wanting to move closer to her creator as she got older in her life, may have viewed it that way. But the way she wrote this moment wasn't necessarily the way a lot of other writers would. And I think that's what the beauty is, is because Maccabea is finding resolve. I think I, I think you and I maybe both feel that way. But it's not clear why, right? Like, it's never clarified that, oh, she's reached salvation. Oh, her suffering has ended. Oh, now, you know, there's just a lot of different ways you can interpret it. And and how Lispector wrote that in a way to be so kind of like neutral to allow a reader to create their own feeling out of that singular action reinforces that theme of a subjective reality over an objective thing, right? I'm me, but everyone might have different views of me. The ending of Maccabea was one thing, but we might all look at it differently. And that's an incredibly complex thing to have achieved in a 77-page novella. I 100% agree. The, the, the juxtaposition of her life to death is one that scholars will be questioning every time somebody new reads this story and has a discussion like this. There's... One of her translators, Katrina Dodson, she did a lot of the short stories that we've read from from that collection of hers, says that translating is this art where you take what the author created and you're sending it through your technology, your signals. And what happens is, is that translation sometimes needs to be updated, right? The way that we talk, the way that we interact or put, assign value to things changes over time. And that's, to me, some of the beauty of Clarice Lispector, is that she can constantly be updated, but it's constantly this befuddling and interesting thing that you love to learn more about. And I think it goes to the thing that a lot of us think about as we get older in our lives, is that the afterlife. You know, I'm, you know, in my 40s now, and my life is maybe roughly half over and I start thinking about those things of what comes next once my life is over. And we turn to art to try to find some of those meanings. And I think that updating it gives a new purpose to art and allows us to start answering some of those difficult questions as we reach maybe a midlife crisis. So guys, whether you're just taking a straight formalist approach to this and walking away with different meanings, or even if you've read her biography by Ben Moser, Clarice Lispector brings herself to this picture. 
you know, in the same way that her son says that he saw echoes of her reading her biography, you see similar things about the storytelling, uh, the stars fortune teller about how she became, you know, disconnected from others. But, but all of these things are just ingredients. At the end of the day, we're making our own recipe here of what this text means to us. And for me, when I struggle of connecting with someone, and not even just over word, we, we meant something different than the words that we use, you know, like the double entendre, or maybe the way we phrased it wasn't perfectly. My desire to connect with my friends, my wife, is an ongoing challenge. And for this book to have really spoken to that, the daily struggle of how do I best communicate me, my best intentions for you as a friend or lover in that situation, is quite magical. And I hope that you can read this book and have a similar experience. And it may not even be that subjective reality. Maybe you equated more about the poverty and the way that we treat and react to people. But if you could walk away from a text and have a very magical connection to it, where you can see your own struggles and your own relationships in it, I think the text is succeeding. I think the text is doing what it was intended to do of touching a part of your heart that is sometimes hard to find. For me, this is one that I feel is something that is almost entry-level philosophy. I don't consider myself very well versed in all the different philosophies and understand them to a degree to be having a great debate about the meanings of life and answering the big questions. But for this book, I feel like it gives me enough ammunition to start asking the right questions. And that for me is invaluable to be able to pick up a 77 page book or listen to it on Audible for a few hours and start being able to just listen and understand better is something that I will treasure the rest of my life. And I want to say thank you to Clarice Lespector because now I have that in my tool belt and I can use that in my classroom. I can use that when having discussions here on the channel. I can have that when I'm at a dinner party and, you know, discussions come up. I'm able to engage, I feel like, on a higher intellectual level. It made me a, a better thinker and a better person. I'm going to give this one um, a, a 10 out of 10. I'm going to give this one 100 stars because that's how many stars are on this cover. <laughs> So take that for what it's worth, whether you're getting an hour for each star and it's your moment in the spotlight, it doesn't matter. This is highly recommended and gets the the double stamp of approval, it sounds like, from the Codex Cantina. So guys, if you, if you love today's conversation and aren't sure what to add, uh, feel free to leave a star emoji down below. We'd certainly appreciate it. We're going to leave a playlist down below of, of all of our Clarice Lispector talks. We love her. We're going to continue to go through her works. I think we have Agua Viva and The Passion According to GH coming up next. If that sounds like you and you want to check out some more of our talks and engage with us and leave some comments down below to let us know what your takeaways were on this piece, we'd love to hear from you. We post videos every Monday and Thursday. Una out. Peace.